No more staying in your own head about thought-provoking topics. Read along with a stress-free book club that fits into a busy lifestyle. From out of the pages to real life, explore the fine line between fiction and nonfiction as we pull from bestsellers that will change your life. Tune in to our bi-weekly book club of mind-bending and empowering stories hosted by Nova Lorraine, founder of Rain Magazine, and her two co-hosts, Toby Santagato and Barbara Donato. Welcome to another episode of Tuesday's Book Club. I'm your co-host, Nova Lorraine, with my other lovely co-hosts, Barbara Donato and Toby Santagato. Hi, ladies. Hey. Hello. Well, today we're going to be talking about the book, Girl Interrupted by Susanna Kaysen. And just to remind you, Tuesday's Book Club is exclusively on the Pink Kangaroo Podcast Network. And again, that's the Pink Kangaroo Podcast Network. And that's Kangaroo with a U. Tuesday Book Club allows you to follow along to best-selling and thought-provoking novels that will change your life. Each show, we discuss what we feel could and should happen next after our stories end. So get your pads, papers, smartphones, whatever you need to do to write down the next two books, which is Autobiography of a Yogi by Paramahansa Yogananda and The Richest Man in Babylon by George Samuel Clayson. Now, we only are announcing two books this time around, guys, because Autobiography of a Yogi is a big one. It's worth it. Trust me, it's worth it. But we want to give you time to get through that book. So this time around, we're just giving you the next two books that we will be covering. So make sure you tune in to the next episode so you can see what comes after The Richest Man in Babylon. So let's hear what our publisher has to say about Girl Interrupted. In 1967, after a session with a psychiatrist she'd never seen before, 18-year-old Susanna Kaysen was put in a taxi and sent to McLean Hospital. She spent most of the next two years in the ward for teenage girls in a psychiatric hospital as renowned for its famous clientele, Sylvia Path, Robert Lowell, James Taylor, and Ray Charles, as for its progressive methods of treating those who could afford its sanctuary. Kaysen's memoir encompasses horror and razor-edge perception while providing vivid portraits of her fellow patients and their keepers. It is a brilliant evocation of a parallel universe set within the kaleidoscopically shifting landscape of the late 60s. Girl Interrupted is a clear-sighted, unflinching document that gives lasting and specific dimension to our definitions of sane and insane, mental illness and recovery. Okay, guys, that's Girl Interrupted. What did you think? Well, I've actually been surrounded by uh, mental illness my whole life. Without going into details, I've had family members that have actually been institutionalized as a matter of fact, this is kind of funny, but not funny. And I know it's not a secret, but my father was institutionalized in Bellevue when he was a kid, Bellevue in, in New York. He was from an immigrant family and his grandmother or great-grandmother came over from the old country and he was a spoiled boy. I think his mom was like 40 when she had him. And he would just go in and out of the refrigerator all the time. And his friends would come over and go in and out of the refrigerator. 
and his great grandmother, I believe, or something, locked the refrigerator down and he like lost it. And there was like a nosy neighbor, this whole story. And basically he, so he went into Bellevue. And the funny thing is he had a blast. He said he didn't have to do school. He got to play ball all day. Yeah, he was sad when he had to leave. But um, So it goes way back in my family. And that part was funny. It's not really a funny thing. I mean, his mother was devastated, angry at her mother-in-law. I think it was, I don't know. But yeah, it is a very serious thing. I've also had a family member institutionalized through a Baker Act, which means that you basically are mandated to go in by family members that think you need to go in. So that has happened as well. And just been around a lot of mental illness with people that are really good people that just struggle. So I've had quite a bit of experience with that. Mm. I I related a lot to the gray area. There's a lot of gray area and they talk about that in the book. And and it is a gray area mental illness because it's very stigmatized. Like people that are crazy, quote unquote, are one dimensional, but they're not. They're not. Right. How about you, Barbara? Uh, So when I first read the book, it was, oh my goodness, a long, long time ago. I feel like when I read it, I was still... I don't know, young, carefree. I didn't know anything about anything. <laughs> and since the second, this is the second time I've read the book. And since then, I have also had to deal with mental illness and within my family. And I've watched friends deal with it. And funny story, I was actually listening to a couple of people uh, yesterday discussing Britney Spears and what she's going through. You know, she's currently under conservatorship. And, and I follow her on Instagram. Just this is such a, a digression, but I follow her Instagram and she looks, it's weird. Like she looks okay. And then everybody's like, oh, she's not okay. But anyway, uh, going back to the book, for me, I read it this time as an information, you know, for more kind of like a, a look inside someone's psyche. Because when the author, when Susanna talks about how she perceives the world around her, and then you see she puts ex, like little excerpts of her, of the, medical notes that she was able to procure from when she was in the hospital. And it's like, I don't know, for me, I guess I kind of felt like, okay, I guess I can understand. Maybe it made me feel, I don't know. I, I, for me, I kind of, it wasn't as entertaining to me this time around as more as it was kind of more of an informational thing, a way for me to understand what mental illness looks like within someone's, with someone who's struggling with it, I guess. Yeah, no, I appreciate both of you sharing that. I, as you know, was pursuing this as a career in terms of psychiatry. Um, In high school, I wanted to be a child psychiatrist. And that I stayed true to until about my junior year in college. And the department chair of the psychology division there at the University of Connecticut had asked if I would consider grad school. He wanted me to think about making an impact on research and more clinical therapeutic treatments as opposed to the more medically, what do you call drug-based treatment that psychiatrists would be doing. And, and so as a mentor, I started research in undergrad and continued it in grad school. So I went on to pursue my PhD in clinical psychology. So it took me back to those days before I had that aha moment of pivoting to the creative industries. Uh, which I'm in now. But I still very much love the field of psychology, the study of the mind. I've always been intrigued by people and their lives and what brings them to certain places and circumstances in their lives. So for me, it was 
partly the scientist in me, the intrigue of why did they get there and are they going to get better and can they get out? And the peak inside the facility, as well as just my own curiosity of just humans and how we see the world just based on our perspective. And so I thought it was very, it was very entertaining, but also it did bring me back to those early days when I was in grad school and I had my own patients and, and when they were doing, had touched on the psychoanalytic component in the book and the reports that these analysts were giving. And I was like, Ooh, I hope I was much, much more thorough. (laughs) I think I was a little more thorough than what they were doing and a little less judgmental, which was a problem I did have with the field at the time was the body. I mean, I honestly, I don't think it's changed that much. There's such a wide range of gifted to non-gifted and all in between in my family. Like I said, I have a lot of experience with this and you have to search out a right therapist for you. So there's so many people that they could be even good, but they're not the right fit. And so it just seemed like it's just, it's such a wide pendulum of care. And I thought one of the things that really struck me in there is when, I think it's at the end, she talks about how it's women that are noticed to be, they get the diagnosis faster. And certainly I think that's still true. It's very rare to for a man to come out or you, even to read about mental illness. It's gotten a little bit more talked about, but it's still like, it's a woman's disease. Almost feel bad for men because it takes a lot longer for them to be treated for issues that they have. But as a mom and experiencing, I've had a lot of experience with OCD and it takes certain type of psychiatrists and psychologists that clicks. And so if anybody's listening to this and they're relating to it or they're depressed or they're trying to figure out their path, like I don't have the experience of, of Nova from that medical side, but I have an experience of knowing that when you do finally find that person that clicks, it does help. It does make a difference. Absolutely. Absolutely. And I think I'm from Jamaica. So my cultural upbringing was completely different than, you know, a lot of the, my fellow classmates. And when someone would come in with certain either customs or traditions that they were used to, especially their view of mental health. And, you know, a lot of individuals of color, they deal with mental health within the family, but it's not something where they seek out therapy for, which is another conversation. But when individuals from other cultural backgrounds come in, are the clinicians even prepared to even deal with that aspect? And again, what are the biases that they're bringing into the conversations? Like we saw clearly with her, with Melvin, like he had preconceived notions of her every single, I mean, and he's been seeing her for weeks throughout the years and he still did not know her. And so she had to constantly correct him. And the only reason why she was speaking up was because she wanted to make a point of correcting his thoughts of her. I think that's interesting. And I love the the fact that you brought up the aspect of how women, you know, the author clearly shares, this is in the late sixties now guys. And so the author shares how women are receiving these diagnoses, right? It talks about promiscuity. You know, one of the things that was in her chart was that she Oh, yeah, that was incredible. That conversation freaked me out. Yeah. Yeah, I, it was just sign of the times. Let's just say that. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, even now, if a woman is out having mutual relationships, sex for lack of a more in conservative word, with several partners, she's considered kind of yucky. But if a guy's doing it, it's it's still like sort of a pat on the back. It's very... Um, one-sided. I still think it's one-sided. 
Yeah. So that was interesting how she brought that up or she was considered promiscuous for three relationships, but how many would it take for a male patient to be considered promiscuous? I love that. How one-sided that was. And you know, too, if, if you don't mind me interrupting, I found it really weird. Okay. So she references back to this English teacher, right? When the book starts and she first goes into the hospital, she's 18. Right. So how old was she when she was dealing with this English teacher who is, according to the book, obviously no longer an English teacher? Do, to me, it was like the men in her life, you know, with the other one who no, won the Nobel Prize. How old was he? I mean, he sounded like he was old, old. And here she is, 18. She doesn't, like these men seem to have gotten off scot-free. You know what I mean? I mean, I, I don't know. Not saying that in the book that it, it didn't seem like they had any negative effect in her, on her, but it kind of seems as if she excused their behavior or she just minimized the fact that these men who were old enough to be her dad were pursuing her and had um, dalliances with her. I just thought that the fact that she skimmed over it was odd to me. You know, what's really interesting that you brought up, and I didn't think of it till just now, is that idea that, you know, we know that the person that had this experience is the writer of the book, and yet she chose to never give any real background of her mother, of her father, even to the extent when she's institutionalized, we don't really even hear the reaction of her parents, or did they fight to get her out, or blah, blah, blah. And now I think about it like, did she have a daddy issue? Why are all the men older than her? That is so interesting. And why didn't she tell us about her family? Why didn't she tell us about her her parents or her father or her experiences? Was that intentional? What do you think? Yeah, because she does mention her mom, like how the police called her mom when she had taken the pills, but that's it. Like you don't hear the reaction. It's you don't minimal. hear about yes. But they did say too that she was able to sign herself in because she was 18. But again, were her parents not with her? I don't know. My kid was 18. I think I would be with them regardless. I'd be with them if they were in the 30s, you know? Of course. My parents too. So it makes me wonder if that's part, if that was part of her mental breakdown. Like if that was part of her psychosis, like she was very, with the multiple personalities, maybe she was very egocentric. Maybe that was part of it as well. Yeah, I think that's a good point because I didn't even, I was wondering what the noble Peace Prize winner. I was like, wait, she's 18. How old is he? How is he reading, winning a Nobel Peace Prize? I just assumed he was young. So now that you're bringing that up, I was like, yeah, that makes sense for him to be a lot older. And now I'm sort of creeped out because this is early on into the book. So I wasn't even going there in terms of the history of the men in her lives, right? Right, right. And in the, in the end, if you remember towards the end of the book, she does talk about how she just didn't fit into what society wanted from her as this girl growing up in this privileged lifestyle and her capabilities were men and writing. Like she said it, she's like, I was good at getting a lot of boyfriends and writing poetry or writing. And that wasn't enough. And because that wasn't enough, I then wanted to show my pain through taking my life, but I didn't really want to take my life, but I wasn't enough. And therefore I was crazy, quote unquote crazy, because I didn't fit into these check boxes. And so again, I never never heard anyone sort of reference getting a lot of boyfriends as a skill, right? But now that you're saying like, wait a minute, yeah, all these men were <laughs> even her rich boyfriend at the end, like she was good at getting men, not good at getting men. She was clearly charming and attractive and and she had the ability to she had this magnetism about her which attracted a lot of men. But it also seemed like she was filling a hole, maybe. And we don't know. 
why did she choose not? I mean, most people, I want to, I mean, I know that's a blanking statement, but often people, when they tell their story and where they've been, they talk about their parents and it's pretty, pretty not much not there. So now I'm like, want to get off this thing and dig and see like, what was her background? What I'm curious. Yeah. Wow. And it could have been that she wanted to protect her parents. I mean, it sounded like she, she went to a private school. This was a privilege, not privilege, but this was a pretty expensive institution again, which was a little surprising when they brought it up. I was like, oh, right. like, you know, like, oh, this is an expensive one and this is the treatment you get. And this is, <laughs> could you imagine the ones that are not the expensive institutions, like the conditions? Yeah. The state funded ones. Jeez. That was disturbing. But so her parents are clearly paying for this because right. you can't stay there when someone's paying for it. So I did think that was interesting. And yes, uh, that her parents weren't discussed, but uh, after realizing it was a, a real story, I was like, oh, maybe she's just protecting their identity. I don't know. I don't know. But yeah, maybe I'm suspect though, like in that she divulged so many things that, yeah, I mean, you know, I think you have an altruistic view of that. And I think that there might be a little bit more of her hiding some things. I don't know. Or maybe she just doesn't realize this is why, you know, we know that there's daddy issues. And I remember when I was, I think it was right when I first had my kids, someone had said to me and it stuck. The more you love your kids, the more reliable you are, the more they, they are calm and trustworthy, the more they can actually, it's the opposite of what you would think, maybe even what, maybe I shouldn't have loved them as much, the more they can just go out and be themselves because they're never worrying. They're never wondering. It's such a calm in their hearts. They, they're not searching. So, you know, whether I do agree with that, like the more predictable your childhood is and the more love you have, the more likely you can be independent. And I want, I just, I'm desperately wanting to know about her childhood now. Yeah. Now I'm a little curious, a little more curious. (laughs) You know, one of the things I thought was fascinating from the beginning of the book is she's talking about these very serious topics that are usually not talked about. And if they're spoken about, it is the observer with judgment, right? It's not the individual that went through the experience. So for example, she brings up suicide and what goes through someone's head prior to deciding to take their life, the the possible thoughts leading up to that and how that can successfully be carried out or why it may not be successful. And it was something that I never thought of before. And I was like, wow, this is deep, maybe true or not. This is like really profound. She went through that process. She was with individuals in an institution that went through that, that action, take, going to the point where you make the decision to take your life. And that was interesting. And I was like, huh, I wonder. And then how she was saying it's more of not so many people want to do it, but they want help. They're screaming, help me. I need attention. I need someone to talk to. There was a, a woman I met. She runs a not-for-profit to help bring down suicide rates. And she was out one day with some friends and from just as a joke, they were, I don't know if they were hiking or whatever, but as a joke, one of the guys pushed her off this ledge and there was water below her, but I don't know and if it was like 50 feet or it was enough for her to think she was going to die. And so she's falling and literally going through these steps like, oh my gosh, in her head, I'm going to die. These are going to be my last thoughts. And all of these things are rushing through her head as she hits the water. And that gave her the inspiration of helping others that are in that midpoint where they made the decision to jump, but now are regretting the decision, but may not be able to reverse it. 
and how many people if they knew like, okay, you're more than likely going to reverse this choice, but it's a little, you know, you can't go back. How many people can she catch before they make that choice? And so it was just interesting now hearing Susanna's perspective after she made the choice because she survived it. And so these are, and that's just one component. You know, she talks about other things as well, but I love how she brings like a real rawness to these very serious topics that, you know, as you said, mental health, there's a stigma in our country and our, in most societies around mental health and that you don't get a chance to have a conversation. But if that conversation was had more often, how many people would actually be saved? Yeah, that's really cool that she, this whole, our whole first season was talking about omens. And again, I don't know why I full circle come back to the fact that if that didn't happen, maybe her life wouldn't have changed. Maybe she wouldn't have saved a ton of people. And that's pretty cool. Like, you know, this is, I mean, it was a weird thing that happened to her, but it changed literally everything about her purpose. And maybe the fact that Susanna was institutionalized and then wrote this book might change people's lives, even maybe not commit suicide. You just don't know. And that's why you have to pay attention to things as they happen, even the small things. But that's really crazy that that happened to her. (laughs) I was actually surprised when she ran into her later because I was like, oh, Lisa decided to leave and they let her? Yeah. How did that even happen? And it'd be normal. (laughs) But I also love that she was rescued by the love of a child, which how many people know? I know how much I love my kids. It's like not touchable. And it's really neat how it was able to bring it full circle of knowing that she was rescued almost by having a child. It was really cool. It makes you wonder, and again, they don't go into uh, the lives of these women outside of of the hospital. But it makes you wonder what sh- that was she acting out because she was yearning for something? You know, was she acting out because she needed that love, that unconditional love? Because Lisa needed to have attention. Ne- Lisa thrived on it. But then Lisa did a lot of self-harm. So what was she escaping from and what was she running to? Yeah, no, I thought it was peculiar that she was in the institution. And again, as I read the book, I was getting a better understanding of how it worked within this particular facility. But I was like, okay, she would escape for two or three days and then she'd be captured and brought, and then she would lose more and more of her privileges. And, but she was the most, I thought, complicated and entertaining character. Yeah, for sure. (laughs) Because she was so unpredictable and she seemed so callous and so mean, but she truly cared about everyone in that that came through those doors. Like she truly wanted to help the other young girls that were coming in. And so that what the reason why I was surprised at the end is because she had the least privileges due to her, all of her escapes. So how did she get out? Like, that was my question was, yeah. And then who was paying for her to stay in there? Uh-huh. <laughs> That's another question. For real. But you know, I think like that when what happened with her and Susanna, I think came to a head. I don't think any, I think she valued Susanna's opinion of her. And when Susanna finally just kind of lashed out and was like, and just kind of let her know, this is the, I see through you. I think when Susanna came back and they sat down and they reconciled, I think that might've been a turning point for her because Susanna was like, I see you. I see the good and I see the bad, but I still, I'm still your friend. And I still, you know what I mean? I still, you know, have warm feeling towards you. And I, I don't think to me, just based on a lot of the things that she did, 
I think she was like, well, you're not going to like me anyway, so just let me do this. I Well, like Lisa, I think, what, what was her last name? Lisa Kobe? Cody. What was the, the, yeah. Lisa Cody. Yeah, Cody. I think she couldn't stand her because she saw this young, I think she saw a little bit of herself in her, just someone who wanted so badly to just get, you know, some type of warmth, some type of like appreciation, like an at-a-girl attitude that she was willing to do, you know, whatever Lisa said, because she saw something in Lisa, right? Lisa was like a leader. And I think the other Lisa, Lisa Cody, wanted to be like her. The main character, the main Lisa. The, the main Lisa looked at Lisa Cody and said, I'm trying to not to be like you. And every time I see you, I see myself. And I think even though she kept saying, well, she just, she's taking away this or she's, you know, trying to be like me. I think she was afraid and I think she didn't like what she saw in her. And so she had to get rid of her because it was, she was just way too much that she was being self-destructive. She was doing, trying to do all of these things so she could get this person's attention. And I think that Lisa was doing the same thing. We don't know who it was, but I think Lisa was doing the same thing. And I think when Lisa saw Lisa Cody, Lisa was like, no, she's way too much. She's too personal. She's too close to me. I got to stay away from this. I saw it a little differently, but that's interesting. And it was a little puzzling to me. They did become fast friends. So I'm just going to say. Yeah, they did eventually. Yeah. Lisa C or Elsie became fast friends with the main character, Lisa. And because they were both junkies and I think Elsie looked up to Lisa, like you said, she was the leader. She was confident. You know, she made a big deal. She got a lot of attention. So as a new kid, you sort of look for that person to figure out how do you survive in this environment? And I think that was her sort of guide. But I thought that Lisa saw Elsie as being inauthentic. And at the end of the day for her, it's, I only want to deal with real people. Like she liked Valerie, her and Valerie, the nurse had had a good relationship because she was real. And even the night nurse that they didn't like and was scared of, she was still real. She was still a straight shooter. So I feel for her, it was the inauthenticity of Lisa C, Elsie, that eventually turned her off because I think Elsie was trying too hard to get the attention of the main Lisa in an authentic way. And then she just, I, that was my interpretation of it. I could definitely see that too. Yeah. Yeah. I definitely felt like Lisa C was very inauthentic and just didn't, she was trying to grasp onto the strongest character and felt like maybe if I can be like her, I'll finally have some type of identity. But the way she was going about it was, you know, oh, I'm a junkie too. Look at my scars. You know, like, you know, I burned myself, you know, wanted to burn herself too. And, and it was just, I think, yeah, the main character, Lisa, just was like, lady, get away from me. <laughs> You're doing too much. Yeah. I think it's interesting how all the characters interacted with one another. And when they talk about the different diagnoses that each one of them had, I thought that it was interesting how they were actually somewhat treated fairly similar, even though they didn't have all the similar diagnoses they were had nuances which just shows you that we've come really far it did and also the medication was all the same you know you're having an episode we're going to view thorazine you know like i do think that mental health and, and awareness is better i didn't mean to diss it earlier but it's just you know it's still it's a lot of work dealing with people that like what i related to a lot with susanna is so people that are very close to me they don't know what's wrong. I have people that I'm very, very, very close to. Maybe they'll be on a show one day and they'll share about themselves. But a lot of times they can't figure out why they have the anxiety. Even if they have like emetophobia, which is being afraid of throwing up, 
my daughter's actually afraid of that Ariel. And the other day she was saying to me, like a severe fear that she, what frustrates her the most is she cannot figure out, and it's been there forever, what the trigger was. So her, my other daughter, Charlie, is also emetophobic, which is interesting. They're deathly afraid of someone throwing up near them or them getting sick. If they, they're queasy for any reason, they shut down. And so Charlie knows how it happened because Ariel had gotten sick once. But Ariel is so angry at the fact that she cannot figure out the trigger. I don't get the moment. I don't understand it. And then when you're going into an anxiety attack, just not knowing even how to control your emotions, how to control your feelings. And one of the aha moments for me in the whole story was when she describes when she's out, when she's first out and she says, I don't want to talk about it because I want to make sure I never go back there. I'm so scared. Even through the end, she was like, I would say to myself, am I crazy? Am I not crazy? Am I crazy? Am I not crazy? And I know my own kids are deal with that every day. Like, I don't want to be afraid. I don't want to feel scared. I don't want to. So you try to stay away from those conversations. And, and it was really interesting how Susanna did that. She was self-preservation. And, and I think that I've seen that with my own family, just so confused as you don't want to be crazy. You don't want to feel these things and you don't, and you don't know why you do and you don't know how to stop it. It's very frustrating. Right. Well, I think there was a few things you brought up there that I thought was interesting. And one is let's just talk about sane and insane for, because she brings it up. Right. And she says, well, what is sanity? What is reality? And am I the only one when I look at someone that I don't see a, a solid face is just see a blob? Am I the only one that sees more than just a pattern on the floor? If this is insanity, how many of us are insane? And when she breaks down the definition of borderline personality in in which they gave her, you know, this was like, she's like, ah, that describes every teenager. They don't know what they want to do. And exactly. And that was really interesting. And then she, we know that her, her circumstance of signing herself in was very suspicious. You know, she was with this doctor that was then accused of sexual harassment later. And it was sort of hinted to, but it was a little fuzzy. And, you know, was he covering his tracks? Did he do something to her? Because she was in with him for what, 15 minutes, 30 minutes. And I believe she said, I was so upset. So upset. Yeah. It was such a hazy situation, right? Yeah. She had a mini skirt on and there was definitely something weird that was going on there. And he was like, Oh, you need some rest. Was that boyfriend bothering you? You need some rest. Who sends an 18-year-old to an institution because her boyfriend's bothering her? Okay, that's a whole nother story. So was she even really, quote unquote, crazy before she even went into the institution? And another thing that I thought was fascinating was they described the institution as almost a safe haven. Like this was a re- almost a retreat. Like you didn't have to deal with the stresses of life. You didn't have to go to school. You didn't have to go to work. People took care of you. Now you have to give up. Like my father, my father felt like it was, he would, he felt so actually says it was some of the best times of his childhood being in that institution. Yeah. So, so you, then you start questioning, how is it that this quote unquote crazy institution or institution for individuals that are, are having mental issues, a safe haven, again, another perspective, right? So from the person inside, she felt like it was time out for her. Like she didn't have what she felt society needed that was enough to be part of that world. 
And so this was her way of escaping and not having to deal with not being enough. Like she was enough within the institution. And then it took time for her to figure out like, wait a minute. Okay, I'm done with this game. (laughs) Yeah. Maybe that's why she didn't fight it when, you know, it just seemed like so easy for her to just go in there. She was so, I know that like mental illness is such an exhausting thing to keep control of being okay when you're struggling with other issues. And it sounds crazy if you don't go through it because then you're like, why would anyone ever want to be in there? Why would they want to stop their life? But honestly, speaking to, again, people that I'm very close with, they've often said to me, I just feel like I would just like to go in there so I don't have to worry. I don't have to feel anxious. I don't have to feel scared. I can just take a break. So I see it. I see the point. Yeah. And I think she was self-aware too, because remember James Watson, uh, her friend, the Nobel Prize friend, was like begging her to escape. Like, can you you know, run away with me. And she had the uh, wherewithal enough to kind of know herself and know that she wasn't ready to leave. You know, she voluntarily checked in. And I think, I don't know what, I don't know if it was the same as the, again, I'm very familiar um, with this, sadly, but when you volunteer to be in those institutions, you can leave once the doctor gives you a diagnosis, you can pretty much leave whenever you want. And she chose to stay for at least two years. So I I think she kind of knew that she needed the help. Yeah. I want to touch a few things before we wrap up, because I see that the time is going. So one, I'd love to hear about your thoughts of her husband. Um, (laughs) Thought that was really interesting. And two, Daisy, which I thought was an interesting character. And before we wrap up, I want us to touch on the painting that she kept referring, referring to throughout the story with the English teacher, that pivotal trip and how she came full circle at the end with her current relationship. So I definitely want to make sure we touch on those three things before we wrap up. So what are your thoughts about her husband? I mean, she gets a marriage proposal while in an institution. What are your your thoughts about that? It just came out of left field, (laughs) at least to me, because before she went into the institution, she was with the boyfriend. She never really stated whether she was like in love with him. It sounded like he was an, he was an annoyance, but she was just kind of with him to be with him. And I think, I think what she, it was the same thing with them when she ended up getting married, it was just kind of a, a marriage, you know, like, heck, I'm going to do it. Like, I think she didn't really think too far into that, into the answer. I think she actually did it because it was like a safe next step. It's almost like, it's like he was very reliable. And so it didn't need love. I don't know if she would have been able to just step out of the institution without sort of, again, they don't talk about the parents. I mean, I would have been at the, you know, no visiting, the parents never visit. Also, they didn't pick her up. You know, I don't know. I think that was her safety net. She literally went from there to that person that was safe. And then maybe when she got her sea legs, she wasn't in love with them. Maybe that's when things fell apart for them. We don't know. And and she moved on. But I think it was like, it was the right time for her to have that. I think so, because, you know, she talks about like the stigma behind people knowing that you had mental health, that you have mental health issues and how hard it is to just do the simple things like get a license or whatever like that. So, you know, back in in that time, you know, men were still it would have been it's easier for her to navigate life with a husband as a wife that. Yeah, as a wife, than than as a single woman in that time. That's right. I don't think it was, it's not talked about that much in the book because I don't think that was even that significant for her. It's just as a reader, you realize, oh, that's what happened to her. Okay. That was the next thing. Then she went on to write books and everything. 
she's written several books. So that's, she's had a huge shift in, in her life. But yeah, that was really my idea on the husband. Not that significant. Yeah. I think I was surprised that there was someone with all the, the trouble she was having, trying to transition out of the home, that there was someone who was not judging her for her mental illness, that they met, they were holding hands in the theater. They met through a a mutual friend and he continued to want to be with her. He moved away and moved back. He would come visit. He would, even if when she didn't want to see him, he would still call. And apparently he was handsome. He cooked for her. He cleaned for her. I mean, this was someone who, at least from what she shared, seemed to unconditionally love her. And as we see, as the story develops, that wasn't enough. Maybe it was too much. No, but some people don't want all that. They just, it suffocates. She seems like a very independent person in her own way. And she just, that's why she didn't have children. She didn't want children. She wanted to do her thing. I know people like that. They, they would be great parents, but they don't want to do it because they don't want to give up the right to just do what they want to do as the mood strikes them. Or thank goodness they don't have children because some do and they're not the greatest parents. So, and again, we don't know about her parents, but maybe her parents were not the parents that she would have wanted. So then she's like, I would be probably similar to them, you know, some version of them. And I don't want to do that to a child. I mean, we won't know that. So what do you guys think of Daisy? (laughs) What was that all about? That young lady. Oh my God. The chicken? Uh, Yes. uh, Oh my God. Daisy, two things about Daisy, laxatives and chicken. (laughs) Okay. And it was such a bizarre way to introduce a character and define a character. And she had such an effect on the patients, you know, in the story, even though she took her life at some point. So she didn't stay with them for the whole story, but she was brought up over and over and over again. And I wonder what she represented to them. And, you know, spoiler alert, there's a scene in the book where it describes Daisy having nine chicken carcasses, whole chicken carcasses lined up in her room one by one and where she peeled off the meat from each one and ate it. And she ate so much chicken, she needed laxatives constantly. Okay, so I'm just setting that scene there. It makes me so nauseous to think about that. But one of the lessons that I identify with that and learn as a parent with my own kids with a metaphobia and and some OCD issues is the problem and probably why she committed suicide. So for parents' advice, at least for me, is I would bend to the will of trying to do everything to not have them anxious. And so I think that's what the parents were doing. You know, oh, we'll just give in. She wants this. She wants that. If we do this and we do that and we do this, she'll be better. She'll come out. She'll be better. And then we'll just let her go back in and do her thing. But every time you do something to bend that, you know, obviously you should be compassionate and there for them. But when it's something, a nuance that seems completely illogical, like having the radio station on an even number and allowing it and they grow and all these procedures keep growing, you're really not helping them. If anything, they should have helped her by not doing that, by finding a doctor that would treat her so that she didn't have to do that. And so the parents probably were confused, probably were desperate, loved her to death, and were just trying to find a way to then let her come back and be normal for a bit. I'm not, I don't recommend that. (laughs) Well, my interpretation and Barbara jump in, it alluded to the fact that her father had a relation, sexual relationship with her. And I think that's what drove her to taking her life. But go ahead, Barbara. Uh, Yeah, that's pretty much, you're right. 
she was so off in such a weird way. So she had this, this weird, like this weird routine with her chicken. And I think that she did that because that was like her only way of controlling, like how she peeled the aluminum foil off the chicken, how she like methodically put them one by one next to each other. And just, she liked the way the carcasses, she left the carcasses intact. I think that was her, like her weird warped control of her life. And then they said that she would always come on her birthday, she would show up or at a holidays. And you're right. I think when they mentioned the thing about the dad couldn't like, he couldn't believe that he had a child like her. He was so in love with her. And then they talked about how beautiful, like, well, she was sexual and they, and she brought up her sexuality and, and she really, she actually really talked about that, about like the way that she walked and the way she carried herself and her butt swishing. And, and it was, I don't know. It was, uh, I felt for her. Daisy was, um, it was short character, but the fact that her father, that they alluded to that with her father and the way that she acted. And then she finally killed herself on her birthday and the anger that she had, she didn't want people anywhere near her. She didn't want people touching her. I just felt for her so much. I wish that she uh, had had more help. Yeah. Where's the mom again? You know, where's the whole picture? I, I'm curious. The mom was cooking the mom the chicken. was making chicken. Yeah. <laughs> That's what I'm saying. They're all, ina- they're so enabling and it's not good. And then he got out of the apartment. It makes me sick to my stomach, to be honest with you. It really makes me a little, I feel sick. Yeah. And it's crazy. And this is what made me so angry. How, when she has to, you can't leave her alone. She's constantly going into, in and out of the hospital because she's having some mental issues. So you decide to get her own apartment with an Eden chicken, excuse me, Eden kitchen. <laughs> and um, that's from the book, people. That's from the book. <laughs> but yeah, she, like, it was just, and she was so excited about it, but. It was too much. I don't know. It was too much. Yeah, it was too much. She couldn't handle it. It's too much. It's too much. And again, overcompensating. That's my theme there. Like you can, whether, whether or not that happened with the dad, like it was intimated, but either way they were doing things that were overcompensating. There was, it didn't seem like there was very much tough love or no, we're not doing that. It's very productive. Yeah. It's sad, really sad. And it's true. We're not just talking about a story. We're talking about someone's life. So it's really sad. So yeah, that was sad. And I think that she did represent where, you know, it was the reality of, yeah, you can get to the point where you don't get out of the institution. Okay. And it can get that bad where you take your life. And, and, and I feel like she kept bringing her up, even though early on she shared that she had taken her life, but she kept telling stories that included Daisy. So I feel like she, Daisy had an impact on, on them. So let's, let's take it full circle. We're towards the end of the book and we finally get a hint on the title. What did you guys think about the reveal of the title? And what does that mean to you with the paintings? In New York. You guys remember that part in the book? Yes. I like how she talked about when she first saw the painting and the young lady, right? And in her mind, this young lady kind of had like a a certain attitude. And again, an attitude, not so much of defiance, but like there was something in her that she felt was off. But I think after when she came back, like after she kind of lived her life and she came back and she saw the painting again and she saw the sadness in the eyes, I think she finally. I think her, her it it just it defined the the change in her life and in her mental you know her the perspective of the painting kind of like the difference in in how she viewed the painting just showed how she grew 
from where she was when she first saw it as a teenager sleeping with her teacher (laughs) to, you know, going through all that she went through. And now she's a young woman. And based on her life experiences, she's able to see a deeper meaning in the young lady in the picture. Yeah. So I really appreciated that she used the painting and I think it was on purpose to show how her perspective changed. And I think that that happens to all of us. It's like when you watch a movie twice, or even if we read this book five years from now or five years ago. So I I thought that was, it was clever and I'm sure it was true because it's a true story, but yeah, the perspective of somebody is affects everything in your life. Yeah. And just to conclude on that, before we go into what we thought happened next is the painting is about a young girl in music class, it looks like. She's about to play her instrument and there's a gentleman over her shadowing her and she has a look of sadness. And I I believe the author mentioned she was almost crying for help. And when she came back and looked at it as, you know, 16 years after leaving the institution with her new rich boyfriend, she realized what the painting meant to her at that time. And she felt that The girl in the painting, when she was 16 or 15 or however old she was when she was with the English teacher, was telling her, don't do it, don't go, don't do it. And she ignored the warning signs. And she saw that moment in her life as being interrupted, that who knows what would have happened, and it's a great lead into what happens next, if she decided not to go to New York with her teacher, if she decided not to get back in that car, if she decided not to let him kiss her. And at that moment, it seemed like that's when her life became interrupted. And then I also saw it, the time in the institution as being interrupted. Like this was a point in all of their lives, each girl that came in, each adolescent teen that came in as an interruption in their life. And most of them did get out, at least the characters we knew that we were introduced to. And so I felt that there was a double meaning. One, here she was, a young girl who had the warning signs that she didn't heed. And therefore, this led to the interruption of her life. Yeah, I agree completely. It is, it's interesting that interrupted even has different meanings, right? I think that that is a good lead in. I, we were talking about it before we started the recording today. You know, what would have happened? Normally, we do what happened next, but this is a true story. And when it is a true story, we often then just talk about if something different happened, what would have happened? So we were talking about if she never was institutionalized, what would have happened? You know, would she have just had this? ordinary life that had episodes and, you know, and, or would, you know, would she have become a writer? Would she, who knows my perspective on it? And I'm sure that my co-hosts will share theirs is that she wouldn't have been institutionalized. She would have been one of those people that had various jobs and various relationships and lived a life. I don't, and, and had mental illness, but nothing that would ever tell somebody she would have been institutionalized. That's my kind of thought on it. But she would, I don't think it would have changed her trajectory where she would have been married and had kids. I think that it would have still been very similar in that she, who she was, was who she'd be. That's just my perspective. Yeah, I agree. I mean, she didn't really change much. (laughs) You know, she was who she was in the institution and she was who she was when she came out of the institution. And, and so I agree. And I, and I think the point she was making in the book where she spent so much time on her diagnosis was that a majority of people could have the same diagnosis. And so um, what really defines someone to be that insane to be put in an institution? And so I thought that was really interesting. Yeah, I feel, yeah, she would have been Susanna and she would have (laughs) probably had multiple jobs and multiple boyfriends. And yeah, I agree. Yeah, same. I think that if she had 
gotten, um, she didn't have to go into the institution, I don't believe. And I think had she gone to someone who actually really wanted to help her, and I think her life would have been a little bit different. You know, I think she, yeah, she just needed a, I think she just needed weekly counseling. <laughs> and I, I think with, with a normal counselor, and I think that she would have had a different. With a normal counselor? You know, her, her trajectory would have changed. But then, to be honest, I kind of feel reading this book a second time that she needed to go through this process to be who she is today, to be the writer. She needed to to make the mistakes, to meet the people that she met because they, just her writing, I, I think they affected her in some type of way. And I think they affected how she moved in the world afterwards. I think I would have just left it alone. And I think I like that. I like the way she uh, she is right now. <laughs> Yeah, I think that's a really good point. Going back to The Alchemist, um, I believe it was our first story that we read for the book club. And we all have a purpose. And Toby had touched on this earlier that due to her experience in the institution and her appreciation, I feel she had more appreciation for life. She had a purpose to live. She really, you know, had value, put value to her freedom. But then she also believed in herself enough to write her stories. And she was a writer in high school. She knew that. And I feel that she was able to find that value to put her words and her experiences into a book that is continuing to change lives. So going back to the alchemist and our path and our journey and some things we have to take, we know that the main character was knocked down many times to the point of almost death in that book and came out you know, stronger for it. And I think this was sort of the fire she had to walk through to Barbara's point. So awesome. Well, thank you ladies for another amazing book and show on Tuesday's book club. Thank you to our listeners for tuning in to another episode. This was Girl Interrupted by Susanna Kaysen and definitely check it out. Read it if you haven't already and also pick up the next two books. The very next one is Autobiography of a Yogi. And so looking forward to you joining us on the next episode of Tuesday's book club. And again, it's on the Pink Kangaroo Podcast Network, and that's Kangaroo with the U. I'm Nova Lorraine, and I'm with my lovely co-hosts, Barbara and Toby. Bye, everyone. Bye. Bye. Bye.